0: You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. It is fantastic to worship with you. It's fantastic to be with you. Um, And it's fantastic to open God's Word with you. Today, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7, continuing in our series in Galatians, which we've entitled Only One Gospel. And today, we're going to be looking at earning nothing, gaining everything. And so, uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. God, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I want to pray for all of our youth, Lord, that are at Bedlam. Lord, as they gather together with 800 other youth from around our province, Lord, I pray that they would love um, worshiping together. I pray that they would love opening your word together. I pray that the word of God um, would grow excitement in their hearts, um, that they wouldn't need um, funny stories or flashy lights or entertaining um, music, but that they would be captivated um, by you and your word Lord, I pray that they would look around and realize that they are not alone and that even though it can feel so lonely out in the world as they go off to work and to school, Lord, would they look around and see um, all these people, all these Christians their age that love you above everything. I pray that they would build strong community together on these kind of weekends, Lord. We pray that you would bless the youth leaders, um, bless all the coffee that they're intaking and all the sleep that they need. Lord, and I just pray that you give them a fantastic time as they pour into our youth, as they um, give our youth um, people, adults that they know care about them, that they know that they can go to for good and godly advice, and people that will pray for them and care about them. And so we thank you for those youth. We thank you for um, your grace, Lord, that we've seen in Galatians, and your grace that I just admit I just stand in awe of here today, Lord. I just know my sin. I feel like I deserve um, to you to give me nothing and to come and to preach. And yet out of your grace, even though I am an evil, sinful man, that you have given um, me thoughts um, to bring in accordance with your word. And so I thank you for those in your name. Amen. All right, I want to start by asking you this question. What's What's the last thing in life that you earned? Um, Our culture is one that teaches us right from a young age that we must earn everything. We look to earn the praise and affirmation of our parents, right? Basically right out of the womb until even after they are gone. We look to earn grades from school teachers, earn admiration from our classmates, earn special attention of our crushes in school. We look to earn playing time from coaches and achievements in our life. And as we grow older, we look to earn paychecks and promotions and status and respect. Our world has taught us that everything needs to be earned. But in our penchant for earning everything, that often paralyzes us when it comes to the gospel and God's grace, doesn't it? Because for many of us, we simply don't know how to receive something without earning it. So instead, we subtly, or some of you not so subtly, um, start working to earn God. You start working for God to earn his grace. And when we're doing this very subtly, in most cases, what are we doing? We're adding to the gospel, right? We create a gospel plus the law. We create a gospel plus works instead of resting in God's gift alone. Marshall Siegel describes it like this. He says, We subtly begin to feel and act like employees when God has made us sons and daughters. And see, it's because I think that working feels better to us, doesn't it? We can be honest and say that I think for a lot of us, it's uncomfortable for us to consider ourselves helpless, and it's almost impossible for us to consider a world where we are not in control. Right? We can be honest. God... Being in control makes us control freaks uncomfortable. And it can be challenging for us to simply rest, even though God has called us to do this, to simply rest in the fact that our eternal security and eternal life is found in his work and simply offered to us as a gift. And so I want you to consider this as we read, because what we're gonna see in this passage is that we earned nothing, but were given everything In my prayers, that would go from where we rejoice intellectually and then live out this earning in our lives, and instead, we would rejoice out of that lived-out experience of this truth. So let's read our text together, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Paul writes this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father." In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So this is our text that we're going to look at today, but we just need to do a brief review of last week because there's a hinge verse in the verse before. Um, You can see from all the colors, I was going to introduce you to lots of things, um, but we don't have time for all of those. So I'm just going to remind you of one. Just look at the red. It says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Right? so if you belong to Christ, and the further the part before is saying, so through faith, so through faith, if you belong to Christ, then you're what? You're God's people, and he's, his argument. Then he builds on it because we know he's been saying that to us lots, and now he's going to tell us if you're God's people, then you are heirs, blessed with the spiritual blessing that God gave Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant. And so this is the context, and this is why he's talking about heirs. And then he's going to describe what he means. And so let's look at what our passage is talking about this morning. And I would encourage you, don't sleep through this part, um, because then you'll get lost. Um, So let's follow Paul's logic together in our text. So he just finished saying in those verses before, if you belong to Christ, then you're an heir. And then Paul says, he starts here, and he says, but here's the thing about heirs. They are actually no different than a slave. And you're like, say what? Let me explain. See, in early Roman law, children under their fathers were like slaves economically. Because economically, they owned nothing until they reached maturity. And so even though one day they would own everything, in the current state, they actually owned nothing. And so Paul likens that to our position. He says, in the same way, when we were apart from God, we were slaves to the elementary principles of the world, right? Even though, remember when we looked at Ephesians 1, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we know that what we were predestined, right, to eventually be sons and sons. Of God, right? We were predestined to adoption as sons. So he's saying, look, you guys are in the same boat, destined one day to own everything when you're adopted into the very, very, very rich family of God, but until that happens, still like a slave. And then we see how this adoption came about in our text, don't we? That God sent his son to do what? To redeem us. And that was his mission, right? And do you remember what redeem means? Redeem basically means to purchase the freedom. And so the Son of God's mission was to purchase our freedom with his life in order that we would receive adoption as sons and daughters of the king. And he moves us from slaves and makes us sons and daughters of God. And I want you to notice the incredible reversal that takes place right here in our text. We see that the Son of God, the Son of God, was born under the law so that those who were under the law become what? Sons and daughters, children of God. It's pretty cool. And how do we know that we are his children, right? How do we know that we are his sons and daughters? What do we see there right at the end of our text? Because God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. That's the proof that you've moved from being a slave to being a son and a daughter of the King. And this text is just so rich, so we're going to go back over it with a fine-tooth comb, and we're going to look for two things in each um, verse. And the first thing we do, you know know what I'm going to tell you? We're going to look for what do we learn about God. But I want to take another shot at something that I don't think I've done a very good job explaining to you as it relates to us as Christians knowing God and why we should long to know Him above everything. So here it goes. Um, because you know that I've talked to you lots about this truth, right? that we should want to know God above everything, that we should look for him first in our Bible reading. And my point has always been what? That we experience ultimate joy. Right? There, there is no greater joy for you as a human being than in knowing God and then knowing him more. That is where you are going to find joy in your life. And if you look for it other places, you are not going to find it. Here's the why. The beauty in finding joy in who God is is because when you learn about who he is, it's not just a concept that lives up here in your head, but rather it's an amazing process where the mind that God gave you that he created in you and the Holy Spirit that lives inside you as a Christian, they connect the knowledge of who God is with your heart and your soul, and then you live that out as joy and peace. And Steph's example there of it is well with my soul is a perfect example of that, right? To walk through life in tragedy, to know who God is, and then to see that come out in the way he wrote that song. That is a beautiful thing. I'll give you an example from my life too, because I didn't know Steph was going to give a perfect example as the Holy Spirit moved him. Um, In my life right now, um, right now this week, uh, my grandma is in the hospital with dementia, I'm on a COVID floor with no visitors allowed, and for reasons unknown to the doctors, her legs have lost all function. And then last night, my grandpa just got rushed to the hospital by an ambulance. And so it's been very painful for me to think of them like this. And if my understanding of God is that it is his job to take away my pain, and if my understanding of prayer is that God should answer my prayers in my way right now, then what's that going to produce in me? It's going to produce anger, isn't it? Why? Because those things aren't happening. God hasn't chose yet to heal. But that's not true. Neither of those things are true of God, are they? So this is where, when I remember that God is sovereign, right, and in control of everything, and I remember the truth that he is the God of all comfort, and I remember the truth that God is their eternal savior, that brings me both joy and peace. Now, do I wish the circumstances would change? Yeah, of course I do. I'm going to keep praying for that. But I have seen, right. so I know this truth that God is the God of all comfort and then I've seen that happen in some of you and some of the people who are now at home with the Lord and I've watched him bring comfort to his children who trust him, right? And when they had no business having comfort or peace. And so that then in turn brings me peace when I cling to that truth about who God is. And I know That with God as their eternal savior, the worst possible outcome on this earth is the greatest possible outcome for both of them as Christians. And that brings me joy, even in the midst of pain. And so as we learn about God, it's not just something that lives unconnected up here, but instead what it does is it anchors our lives and it produces tremendous joy and peace in us. right? Both as we live through the joy and pains of living on this earth. And you might say to me, Mark, that sounds really great, um, but I'm not feeling any of that right now in my life, if I'm honest. So what I want you to do, I wanna encourage you to focus on two connecting pieces. So this is what I want you to do. Take something that you know to be true about God and then pray and pray desperately for it. Pray that God would help connect the truth about himself to your heart and that you would experience joy joy in peace through these things and then do two things. I know I'm asking you to do a lot. Spend time listening to God. That's number 1. Because we're really bad at this. This is like a Mark preaching to Mark thing cuz I'm bad at this to slow down and to listen to God, right? And then roll up your proverbial sleeves and do some thinking, right? Don't listen to music in the shower. Don't turn on another podcast in the car. Don't watch another Hallmark movie where you know exactly what's going to happen anyways. Take some time in silence to listen and to think and to pray. So number 1, we want to learn about who God is and the number 2, we're going to look at what do we have through God? Because in this passage he builds on it and he shares all these tremendous truths of what we have in God and we're going to talk about why those are life changing. So verses one and two, they're the analogy. They set the stage. And then you got a Mark special starting in verse three. So let's look at the yellow. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. To first know what we have in God, it is first wise for us to consider our situation without God, right? Because that magnifies what we have in God. Right? So, Pastor Mark Dever, he describes it like turning the location services on on your phone. Right? You can't use Apple Maps, you can't use Google Maps until you turn on the location services because you need to know where you are starting. Right? You can't begin the journey until you know where to start. And this is absolutely imperative for our spiritual lives, too. Right? And what tells us our spiritual location? right, is God's word, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can go into because it does it both for non-Christians and it also does it for Christians. But here in this verse, what does it tell us, right? It tells us that without God, the Bible describes us as enslaved to the world. Without God, that is our starting point. And then if you look at the pink, it says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What do we learn here? What do you learn about God? We see that God is sovereign, don't we? He is in absolute, complete control. He's even in control of what? Time. When the fullness of time had come, God, right? God was moving. He's outside of time, in control of time. And here's my question to you that God's been asking me this week. What area of your life do you need to trust in the sovereignty of God? He was asking me that question before. I was going to know the answer to it. Green. Look at the green. Born of a woman. What here do we learn about our God? What do we learn about our God? We're reminded of the humanity of Jesus, right? And this is actually very essential to the gospel, and it's something that we don't often think about. And we don't have time to dive into everything, but I want you to roll around in your brain uh, three theological implications and three practical implications as you contemplate the humanity of Jesus and what that means for us and about God. So theological first. Number one, Jesus is fallen, right, sinful, humanity's representative, right? He's the last Adam. He's not, he not only died for sinners, but he lives for us as well. That's a glorious thought. Number two, Jesus is fallen humanity's substitute, right? Jesus dying in our place in appeasing the wrath of God, right? Party time. Uh, we call that substitutionary atonement is only possible because he was fully God, but also fully human. And then number three, Jesus is redeemed, right? No longer fallen, but redeemed because of the work of Jesus, humanity's example. In 1 Peter 1.21, there's this beautiful verse and it says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Listen to this. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Is that not glorious? Jesus was the true man who lived perfectly obedient to God in a flawless, God-honoring, spirit-filled life. And he's the one that we are to model our obedience after in our life. And then practically. There's lots of practical implications. You can think of some of them. We're going to look at three. Number one, he knows your pain. As Jesus took on humanity, he knows your pain. He knows the pain of losing those you love. He knows the pain of watching people you love not follow God. He knows the pain of being misunderstood. He knows the pain of being hated. He knows the pain of being stabbed in the back and betrayed. He knows your pain. He also knows your temptation. He knows the horrible pull of sin, right? The pull not to obey. The pull to take the easy way out. The pull to make much of yourself instead of making much of God. And number three, he knows your struggle. He knows what it's like to be hungry. Some of you may wrestle with that right now. He knows what it's like to be exhausted and worn down. Some of you might be there right now. He knows what it's like to endure the struggle of growing. He knows what it's look, to look like to look around and struggle with justice. He knows what it's like to look around and see pain and suffering everywhere you look. Jesus knows you. And then if you look at the blue, what does it say next? It says, born under the law, right? We're going to learn another thing about Jesus here. Do you remember what the primary function of the law is? Quiz time. What's one of the primary functions of the law? It was to expose our sin and show our need for God, right? To show us the gap between sinful people and a holy God. And they were reminded of that over and over and over again when they couldn't keep any of those laws and when they constantly had to bring sacrifices. And yet, what do we learn here? That Jesus was born under the law, and yet, what do we know about his life? What it exposed was not that he needed God, but that he was God. Is that not beautiful? Right? Because he was the only one who could keep the law perfectly and then look at the orange there, right? To redeem those who were under the law because we needed help, we needed redemption because we couldn't keep the law, right? So the basic idea of redemption is that someone else is entrusted to secure your release from oppression, harm, evil, enslavement, etc. And to do this, this person must avenge the wrongs or pay the price for the person that is to be set free. That's what it means to be redeemed. And so Boaz acted as Ruth's redeemer, right? God acted as Israel's redeemer. That's what he says in Exodus 6 and also Exodus 15. In that case, it was by avenging the wrongs and setting them free from slavery. And then Jesus, God's son, and I know you know this, but see this with new eyes. Jesus, God's son, acted as your redeemer. By paying the price, because the wages of sin are what? Death, right? He paid with his life so that we would no longer be enslaved, right? And this is the mercy that the all consuming God of the universe has shown to my undeserving soul and to yours. And so, what did he do? Why did he do it? Look at the red. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Right, so that we might receive adoption into God's family. Remember what Dr. Craig touched on briefly last week. Our world is obsessed, driven, built around. It's got all these different structures, right, morality structures, economic structures, emotional structures, gender structures. The world's whole worldview is built around finding out and living out who you are as found in you. But as Christians, we know that that's the wrong question to be asking, which is why there's so much pain and so much confusion in our world. Because the question isn't who we are, but whose we are. And Christians, you belong to God, adopted as sons and daughters of God. You're the sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And some of you need to know that today. And some of you need to take comfort in that, and some of you need to rest in that, and some of you need to live like that, that we are sons and daughters of the king. It's a life-changing truth, and it will change how you see God when you consider him from this perspective, and how you see yourself, and how you see others. And some of you right now are literally living through this idea of adoption right now. I think that fostering and adopting are two of the most beautiful life pictures of the gospel that someone can give because you give it with your whole life. And so those of you in the thick of it and those of you walking alongside people in the thick of it, I just want to encourage you to keep going, to keep pressing on because your selfless love and sacrifice are a witness and they're a testimony and an encouragement to all of us. And though um, the hearts of these faithful parents are absolutely beautiful, they're still only a picture, aren't they? They're only a picture of the great love of God the Father, which we read about in verse 6. Look at what we see here in the yellow. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what do we learn about God in verse 6? We learn that he is an endearing, safe, caring father, right? The word Abba is equivalent sort of of our word daddy, right? Which is used by a small child when they are in the safe presence of a loving father. And for some of you, I know this is a really, really hard concept because you would rarely use the word safe or loving or caring when referring to your father. And I just want to acknowledge that pain and say, I am so, so sorry that you have experienced the evil of sin in that way. But I also want to encourage you, even though I know what I'm asking you to do is incredibly emotionally hard, but it's to press into the idea of God as your perfect father and not run away from it. And if you're in pain right now, I would encourage you to call out to God like Jesus did in Mark 14, 36. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane right before he takes the sin of the world on himself and he addresses God as Abba, right? He calls out to him and he, he says, Daddy, I need you right now. And if you need comfort today, Like Jesus was in the garden, I would encourage you to call out to your daddy. But as we come back to our verse, um, the context of crying here is not because of sorrow, but it's actually a cry of joy. It's the same cry of joy that they did when they um, said Hosanna to Jesus when he's coming in. That's the same word there in the Greek. And so it's actually um, pictured this way. Picture in adoption, right, if you've adopted a child in that beautiful moment where for the very first time that child comes running to you overjoyed and says, Daddy, I love you, or Mommy, I love you. Daddy, guess what? Mommy, guess what? That's what it's like, right? As we come to God and we're no longer slaves, but instead it's us running to God overjoyed that we are his sons and daughters, Right? And that's the beautiful, lived-out joy of the theological truth that we are sons and daughters of God. And now you might be looking at this verse, all you astute people, and you might be saying, what's happening in this verse? Who is the one crying out in joy? Is it the Holy Spirit, or is it us? Romans 8 actually gives us our answer. Romans eight fifteen through 16. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so who's giving the joyful expression? What does it say there? Whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we are the ones doing the crying, Right? It's not some sort of separate experience where the Holy Spirit's inside of us and he's crying out, I have a father, and we're like, I don't know if I like this or not. Um, it's not one of those things. right? It, it's us doing the crying out to God in joy. And you're like, how does that work? Verse 16 tells us. What does it say? The Spirit himself bears witness. What does it say? With. With our spirit. Right? So that's the Holy Spirit giving a voice to our heart right? It's joining our spirit and God's spirit together, giving a a voice to a joyful, safe, secure heart to say what? To look at the unspeakable, glorious, beautiful truths that we are children of God. Is that not fantastic? It's amazing. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You've experienced this, right? And that's amazing. And some of you are nodding your head, yes. And some of you think I'm crazy right? And That's fair. I am. But look at the text, right? Look at the text. What does it say? It says, this is a Christian experience. This is something that we experience as Christians, something God has given to all of us. This is not something special that pastors experience and people that are Christians for more than 15 years. This is something that you experience as a Christian, and that should rock your prayer life because it means right now that your spirit and God's spirit together, when you go and pray and testify to the Lord, he's listening to you and he listens to your prayers as much as he listens to mine. Yes, I love praying for you guys, but you don't need my prayers anymore than God listens to your prayers, right? And when you go and minister and when people are hurting, we don't need a pastor to go because you're there as a Christian and they hear the same thing. And that's a beautiful, glorious, miraculous truth of the church. And that's why church planting is fantastic and why it's such a great ministry, right? Because we're planting Christians all over and it's God moving through everyone together, not just through one pastor or two, right? And that's why we're gonna equip all of us to do this better, right? And to care for each other, right? On things like this truth. And so I wanna encourage you. You're like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. I would encourage you to start looking and listening for this happening in your heart if you are a Christian. Um, one more thing in the yellow. We could go on for days, but I won't because you would never come back. Uh, so just one more thing to consider. As we consider um, this glorious truth that God sent his spirit, His son, into our hearts, um, it reminds us of this, that we are intimately known by God. That we have a father that we can joyfully run to, and we have his spirit that lives inside of us. This means that you are known and you're not alone, right? And some of you need to hear that today. And because I'm a perfectionist, I'm predisposed to struggle with my own imperfection, right? And some of you are like, amen, right? One of the most staggering truths for us perfectionists is, and for me, for the truth of the gospel, is that I'm fully known. I mean, God knows everything, all my evil, all my sin, all my mess, and yet I am fully loved, absolutely fully loved, right? So often we are scared to open up to people because we're afraid that being fully known will equal not fully loved. But in the gospel, we can joyfully run to our daddy who knows everything about us, and yet we are fully loved in him. And then pink. Look at this glorious truth in verse seven, right? That we've moved, we've moved from the start of our journey, right? As slaves to now children of God, as, um, as um, children of the king, we are heirs, right? We see that. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Through whose work? What does it say? God, through God's work. Right? And this points us to the incredible promise that because our daddy is unimaginably wealthy, guess what? He's the owner of everything. We are wealthy beyond imagination. Right? You know at Christmas parties where you have to estimate those jars and try to figure out how much is in a jar? I dare you to try to estimate this promise. Try to estimate what it means that we are heirs through God and therefore owners of everything because he owns everything. This is a promise that you can't even quantify or scratch the surface of what it means. If you need help falling asleep tonight, just wrestle with that for like half hour. And I'll conky you out because it just it's overwhelming. And yet it's so glorious and so true and so amazing. There's one other thing I want to point out in relation to airs. Um, you know how most of the shows on Netflix, um, involving an air normally involves basically one of three things. If there's a show and it's got an air in it, um, one of three things is basically going to happen. Either the, he- the heir, they hate mom and dad, and they try to take away their money or tarnish their name and or kill them. That's option number one. Option number two, mom and dad, they hate the heir. And so they just try to keep their vast wealth from heir, and that causes the conflict in the show, and off they go. And then number three, mom and dad have multiple heirs, but one of them is not as loved as the other. So what do they do? They show favoritism. Right, and you're just screaming at it and saying, "Like, time out! Like James two told you, don't show favoritism. This is going to go horribly." Um, second time out. Here's your homework. After you've contemplated all the glorious truths that we've looked at in this text, think about this. Think about how many shows, like their entire premise, would be ruined by one godly act of obedience that will ruin your Netflix experience. Okay, back on track. So. You could save 15 bucks a month, or it keeps going up. <laughs> so mom and dad, what do they do? They show favoritism, and they try to keep the wealth from one heir and give it to the other. That's option number three. And all three of them are what? They're all a mess, and that's why the show goes, right? And yet that's nothing like the relationship that we see here. See, Paul's image of adoption is even weightier for those who would be originally receiving the letter, right? It would have been... Um, incredibly, like it created this incredible cognitive dissonance for those living in the Roman Empire. Because here's the reason, we don't get this. Adopting strangers was incredibly rare. And you would almost never adopt an heir if you already had a legitimate heir, right? Which the Jewish people considered themselves to be, right? And yet this is exactly what God did for the Gentiles, right? AKA us, And this shows us two things, doesn't it? It shows us a radical, unexpected, deep love of God for you. And number two, it teaches us something about our inheritance. Why would you not adopt an heir if you already had a legitimate heir? Why would you not do that? Because you didn't want to split your estate, right? But the estate that we receive As children of God, is infinite in wealth and splendor and glory and power because what's our ultimate inheritance? It's relationship with God himself. And so he doesn't have to worry about splitting it up. There's enough for everyone. There's infinite amounts for everyone. And that's a glorious thing. And so we circle back to this point of earning nothing, gaining everything. And I hope you've seen that today. Right, and as we look, one last thing at the text. I did three things. So, in the pink is the work of God the Father. The yellow is the work of God the Son, and the green is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the hardest one to figure out, so I'll just tell you that one. The Holy Spirit, His work in this whole process, is He's the sealer of the adoption. Right? He's the one that demonstrates that it took place. Right? He's the deposit. Right? He shows that it happened. And so, as you look at the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, let me ask you this Did we earn anything? No, we didn't. But what did we gain? Look at all these things, true knowledge of ourselves apart from God, safety, intimacy, that we are known and loved. We gained an identity, unspeakable joy, wealth beyond imagination. We gained a God who is sovereign, a God who knows our pain, struggle, and temptation, yet was perfect, a redeemer who paid our price, the Holy Spirit who takes knowledge and creates lived experience of God in us, a God who loves us unexpectedly, a perfect dad. This is what we have gained in Christ Marshall Siegel sums it up perfectly. He says this Galatians as a whole suggests that we will be tempted to compromise and deny the gospel by treating God as an impersonal master and not a father. We'll try to prove ourselves to him and earn his love when he has already loved us and sent his son for us. Remember, we have earned nothing and gained everything thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio for more resources or to connect with us visit calvarygravenhurst.com